The following is a Westminster Seminary, California morning devotion given by a guest speaker. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about Westminster Seminary, California, visit us online at wscal.edu or call 888-480-8474. That's online, wscal.edu, or call 888-480-8474. Well, good morning, friends, and welcome to chapel. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker this morning, Reverend Chris Gordon. He received his Master of Divinity from Westminster Seminary, California in 2004. He was then ordained in the the, the URCNA, ended up pastoring a church, uh, Linden URC in Washington from 2004 to 2012, and then received a call here, accepted a call to pastor uh, Escondido URC here and has been here ever since. He is the host of Abounding Grace Radio. He is a husband, a father, and a dear friend. And brother, we're glad that you're here. Thanks for coming. It's good to uh, be with you again. And always an honor to uh, speak here and to lead chapel. Uh, Wonderful to see all of you. Um, Your librarian reminded me I only have 20 minutes and he doesn't even show up. So I've got to keep it. I, don't, I guess I don't have to honor that, so. Um, I'm going to read this morning out of Hebrews chapter 3, uh, the first six verses. I'm working through the book of Hebrews right now, and um, we're looking at the first six verses of Hebrews 3. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And there ends uh, the reading of God's word. Well, my goal uh, this morning is to encourage you for a moment uh, here as your studies are going here at Westminster, such a a privilege to study here and so thankful for the work and especially of all the professors, all that you do. Um, a lot of time and devotion is given to this and uh, always grateful to be a part and to share and to pray for this great um, project. But I want to encourage you and say, make sort of a big claim here, that you are involved in the most important project that's happening uh, on this earth. That, of course, is a uh, somewhat of a, a big claim and seems contrary to everything that is happening uh, in the world right now. We have so much happening. We've just, I think, sort of come out of a pandemic, and um, here we are, and we're watching eagerly the news, wondering uh, what's going to happen this week. Are we going to break out into World War III? And there's nuclear talks, and all these things are scaring people, and what a moment it is to live and um, to do the work of Christ in the ministry. All of this uh, has turned our attention uh, to the world, hasn't it? 
Uh, the world scene. I remember when I was at Westminster, we were, we were all talking about things like justification. and We were wrestling with those big issues. We're not talking about that now. We're not wrestling with that now. We have all these cultural problems that are in front of us and how easy it is to be distracted. And our greatest danger with so much happening is to begin to think that God is not really doing anything in the midst of this. Does it have to be something like what's happening in the Ukraine that the little guy always loses? Um, is God actively working? What is God doing in these times in which we live? And are we a part of anything that's significant in the big scheme of things, in the whole picture, in light of the bigger problems, at least as we see them in the moment of what's happening in the world? And what the author of Hebrews is doing here is encouraging these Christians who are really struggling with things like this, uh, struggling with wanting to go back to the old system, the old sacrificial system, Old Testament worship, all the pressures that they had in this book, and they didn't really appreciate what they were a part of in the body of Christ and what was happening. And that's what I want to um, help you with a little bit this morning from Hebrews chapter 3. Um, we already know from the beginning of Chapter 2, that first warning that came, uh, therefore we must pay the most close attention to the things that we have heard, lest we drift away from it. So he's concerned about this. He's concerned about the direction Christians are going in the midst of all of these problems in the world. They were hated and were about to face persecution by Rome. And he will come in the second major warning that follows what I read here from Hebrews chapter 3 and uh, warn them that he's concerned about an evil heart of unbelief. So this is a, a big concern that the author has here. And in the middle of these warnings, what he's doing is giving exposition of the scriptures from the Old Testament to help them and encourage them and try to keep them on track in light of all these problems that are happening. And the essential point that he's making, I believe, here is in this particular section is to help them understand and think and appreciate what they are a part of, what they belong to, what has happened and what Jesus has accomplished. So what the author does here is help them with that great goal, I think particularly in chapter 3, as you'll notice here, he makes a great comparison uh, between Jesus and Moses to help them with this. Um, there's that single word at the very end of verse 6 in this pericope that we should hold fast our confidence. See, he's, he's concerned about that. He's concerned about confidence. He's concerned um, about hope. You'll notice at the very end that we boast in our hope. So he's setting their minds correct and he's helping them with this great problem in making this essential contrast that's here in chapter 3. And so you'll notice that um, beginning at verse 1 of 3, he says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling. That's such an important statement that he's trying to help them with, uh, to have them think of where they truly belong, who they are, what God has done, and that they have a heavenly hope, a heavenly city that is prepared for them that he will develop in this book. But now to the problem at hand in chapter three that he's helping them with. I want you all to consider Jesus. I want you all to consider Jesus. Notice how he says it, um, the apostle and the high priest of our confession. 
Um, it's really, I think, the only place in the New Testament in my search that Jesus is called an apostle. But one we know as an apostle is sent by God to represent him. And of course, a high priest uh, represents God to the people through making uh, atonement for sins. So he's drawing off very important themes here that the listeners would have understood. And he makes this direct comparison to the figure of Moses. The reason he's grabbing Moses is because they wanted to go back to what they thought in light of persecution and in light of struggle and in light of hardship to a time that they would have perceived that would have had more power, I guess you would say. Um, a better revelation of God. Something that was at least something that they could experience that was, that was better than what they were getting in the present. Because whatever was happening in the present what they were a part of didn't seem to offer the power that they assumed was there in the Old Covenant. And power is a big word in the book of Hebrews. In some Jewish literature, they said that uh, there are writings that say that Moses was of greater position than the angels. And I think that's probably what's behind the comparison here, as he's already showed Jesus' supremacy and superiority to the angels, and now He's going after this great figure in the Old Testament who they held so high as was in Moses. Now, what the author essentially says here is important. You'll notice that the central word that he's working with here is this word oikos, um, house. That little word house is mentioned uh, numerous times in these first six verses here. Uh, literally a, a dwelling or a family household as he's thinking about as he looks at it. And on his mind is in the Old Testament was the place that God dwelled with his people. He knows that's on their mind. Where is God? What is he doing? Where's the deliverance? Where's the help in all of this? And the author says something very profound here, where he essentially says in very clear terms, Moses was never the builder of the house. Moses was a great faithful servant, you'll notice he said. A great faithful servant having to do, particularly in this case, as we see this develop throughout the Old Covenant, um, particularly having to do with the tabernacle. Notice what's said of Moses in verse 5. He was faithful as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. So there was a testimony in the construction of the tabernacle that he's working with here, and he wants us to think about that as he wrestles through this. Moses was faithful. Jesus was faithful. Moses was a servant. Jesus is the divine son. What are the implications of that? Moses, the servant, Jesus counted of worthy of more glory than Moses, he says, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses didn't build the house. <laughs> he wants you to think about that. He wanted the early Christians to think. Moses didn't build the house. God did was always in the plan that God would do the house building. Well, that theme was really prominent throughout the Old Testament, wasn't it? Um, it was the great figure Moses who was handed the building instructions for the tabernacle, 
And you'll remember um, that when he was told to construct the tabernacle, he was told to construct that tabernacle just according to the pattern that was shown to him on the mountain. So he was given, in a sense, divine building plans from God up there those 40 days to construct the tabernacle. And at the end of Exodus chapter 40, we have that great moment, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And if any New Testament Jewish Christian were reading that in that context, they would say, ah, see, there's glory in that. There's better glory in that. Imagine that experience of the glory coming down the cloud and resting on the tabernacle to declare that God himself was with them. Throughout the Old Testament, there would be promises, and one from 1 Samuel 2, and I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever." David said, oh, that's got to be me. I'm going to build that thing. Remember? And God said this. Go tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word of any of the, uh, with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, when you put all this together, and we have the benefit now of of receiving um, the revelation of God as Jesus himself speaking and giving us his word, we know from something like John that John made very clear in chapter 1 that Jesus is the tabernacle. Jesus is the tabernacle. And that God... Um, remember Jesus uh, speaking to the woman at the well, is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth, not on this mountain or not on that mountain, not in a, in a, in a house of cedar, but true spiritual worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And in fact, Jesus was all the more direct in John 2 when he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And down went the temple in AD 70, didn't it? And something was raised up. Something was raised up glorious. And that's what he's having them to to think about. The gathering of God's people happens no more in a temple that is built with hands. But wherever God's people gather in his name and call out upon his name, there the Lord is. There is true worship. So if Jesus is not building 
a temple made with hands. What is the temple? What is the house? And verse 6 says it so powerfully, doesn't it? Where he says there, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. We are his house. It's you. You're the house. You're the fulfillment of all that, that was looked to in the Old Testament in the building project of God. You're the house, he says. And that's why the authors of the New Testament were so overwhelmed with this great truth. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Which, by the way, dispensationalism, wanting to erect the temple again, would be a gross blasphemy. You're the house. A spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, so you see what he's impressing upon them. Do you know what you're involved with? Do you understand it? You're looking at things all wrongly. And, and, and the really powerful thing that he said previous to this, something that's so special, God is not ashamed of you. Now think of them being ashamed of the gospel. God's not ashamed. He's not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call you his family. Here's what he's saying. When you gather, which he's been developing in this book, when you gather to listen to Jesus, you are the house he's building. You are the fulfillment. Now what's their problem? There's no confidence in the church. There is no confidence in the church. There's no confidence that the church is anything in this world. And he's challenging that. Do you know what you're a part of? God is not ashamed of you. He has, as he's going to develop in Hebrews, he's prepared a city for you. He's gathering into his house all the peoples of the earth wherever they call on his name, of all tribes, tongues, peoples, ethnicities, all the peoples on the earth, wherever they worship, that is his house. And he is doing that great work. He's demonstrating the true nature and the power of the kingdom of God. And what did it lead to? Well, since they had no confidence in the church, therefore, brothers, since we have Confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over what? The house of God, which is you. You should do something important. You should draw near with a true heart. In full assurance of faith, with your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the house habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see that great day drawing near when you receive that ultimate heavenly calling that you have of all that's promised to you in the gospel. There were some who were losing confidence in the church. And lo and behold, they said, we don't need to go to church to be Christians. And I think the author said, excuse me? You have a high priest over the house who is you? 
The greatest expression of the kingdom of God is when you gather? How could you say that? We struggle today to understand what the church is. This is greatly to be, needs to be recovered. We're masters today at um, beating up the church for all her failures. I mean, this is the constant exercise on social media. Beating up the church endlessly for all of its failure. The church always seems to get last place, at least in my almost 20 years now, to every other built kingdom building project that goes on. I think um, we've seen something remarkable this past uh, week. Uh, commitment for a kingdom of this world from the Ukrainians. I've been taken by it. I've been taken by the bravery. Uh, what do they order? Six, ages six, uh, 16 to 60, had to go fight for their country and leave their families to defend their homeland? Um, I was talking with a Ukrainian here, a friend of mine in the community, and he's just devastated by the whole thing and said, I would fight to the death for my homeland against those Russians. I had to pray Sunday, Lord, reroute the Russians. I never thought I'd have to pray that. They say, I'm not entirely sure, but the real battle over Kiev is really a battle of kind of a perspective of a holy city as Russia was somewhat baptized there, all the inhabitants in 988. And um, notice the themes here, a land, a city, and a people. And look at the devotion to that. And then a president who's not in the bunkers. I mean, that's what leaders do. They, they get taken out and they're protected. This guy put on the sweatpants. This guy took the arms. This guy's out fighting with them. Maybe that's a small, faint reflection of something much greater. Um, you have a king who came here and also put on the sweatpants. And for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross to make atonement for all your sins and joy did that not hiding but went right out in the open to take the hits for you and he's telling you not to take up physical arms for this kingdom in fact one of the greatest things he ever announced was it's the father's great happiness to give you the kingdom to you just be recipients of that kingdom and then as hebrews will say he's prepared a city for you He's not telling you to do what's happening in the Ukraine in that way. You see, I think the Westminster Confession, to get a Heidelberg guy to quote the Westminster Confession is a great moment. So the church is, think about this, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the house and the family of God. There is nothing in this life that gives you a greater privilege than to be members of the church. That is your greatest privilege. And he's pressing all of us to a love for the church. I want you to realize, you know, what you're studying here is not some little thing. It's not just a little thing you're doing. You're studying to be a part of God's grand building project, to build up living stones of a temple that's great, and God is not ashamed to call you his family. 
And when we gather around the voice of Jesus every week, when we have that great privilege on the Sabbath to come together twice and worship him, what a privilege. What a privilege. Love his church. Love his people. You are his building. You are his temple. You cannot be a Christian and be disconnected from his body. God has said, I will dwell with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, for we are the temple of the living God. And through that great work, God is taking his salvation to the ends of the earth to save a people for himself, and nothing can stop that. Nothing can frustrate that in his great plan. So he ends by saying, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. In these crazy times in which we live, hold fast to Jesus, his righteousness. You are his body. You are his church. You are his chosen people, elect out of the nations. May we always then hear his call. Seek ye first my kingdom and my righteousness. And don't worry about everything. He will protect us. He will defend us. And he will take his salvation to the ends of the earth. For this is his great building project. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word today. And thank you for encouraging us as to what we are a part of in a world that shows us all of this suffering and sorrow and death and misery. And yet you have established a great temple. You have built up a great place where your people gather and call upon the name of the Lord, there is your house. And that door is open in these days to all the nations that they might come and hear the desire of the nations. Thank you, O Lord, for instructing us this way and bless these students, encourage them in their work and the professors. And may they, Lord, have great confidence themselves in what they are a part of and not lose heart in the struggle. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2022, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.